find, if you would, Matthew 22, verse 23. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the eleventh, the seventh, sorry, the eleventh. There was a handful of other brothers, but they weren't around for much. Sorry. Even to the seventh and last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Now Jesus answered and he said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry, nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you, to you? By God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Will you pray with me, please? Father, in the stillness of this room, we ask for you to captivate, that you would commandeer our attention and make this time perfect time spent, that we today will be completely engulfed and enraptured in you, in your word, and better understand, Lord, your call on our lives your love for us, your challenge and your call on us, Lord, and and in such a way, Lord, that we would recognize that the gift of Jesus Christ, Father, that the gift of Jesus Christ would be so much more than just simply a get-out-of-hell-free card. That today, Lord, no no matter where we've come from, no matter what language we or, or culture, that today here in this room, you would speak to every one of us right where we need to hear you and right in a way that we would understand. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to receive. Give us minds to comprehend. And may your Holy Spirit do his work convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment and reminding your saints what you've spoken to us. Teach us, exhort us, challenge us, correct us, Equip us for every good work. And let this time be time perfectly spent, I pray. As I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of this time. Minister now, Lord, to each of us, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the final say. It's now Tuesday. It's the Tuesday of what we would call Passion Week. On Sunday, it was evening when Jesus showed up. And he showed up with people crying out, Hoshana! Hoshana! Blessed be the King of David. But what king were they looking for? Hoshana, God save now. But save from what? Jesus is looking, and as he's looking, and he's descending from the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem, through the valley we would call the Valley Kidron, which is dark because it was the sewer system. The blood of lambs will flow through there as Jesus, the Lamb of God, walks through there on his arrest just two days from now. And he hears them cry for king. Melech ben David, the king, the son of David. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God save now. Hoshana. And strangely enough, Jesus is crying. He's crying because the salvation they were looking for was a temporary salvation. A salvation from the Romans. A salvation from their bondage. A salvation like the Israelites crying out in the first 11 chapters, if you will, of Exodus. Crying out for deliverance from the temporary bondage of the moment. The king... But not a king of their life, of their eternity, of their soul, but a king to lead them into battle, to overcome those discomforts. And he's crying. My God in the flesh, riding a donkey, proclaiming peace, as Zechariah promised, crying. Because what the people wanted was just for the moment, And they had no idea who it was they were asking. And that was Sunday. It was a couple days ago. Yesterday, Monday, Jesus went in. We read on on Monday, that's the first day, if you will, of Passover, of Pesach. We have what's called chmetz. Chmetz, by the way, is the leaven. And you drive the leaven out of the house. In essence, what you do on Monday is house inspection. You inspect your house. And you drive all the leaven, and the term is to drive out all of the leaven from the house. And on Monday, that's exactly what Jesus does. He comes to his house to experience, not just to celebrate, but to experience the Passover as the Lamb of God. And as he does, he drives out the money changers and those that sold doves that were supposed to give them to people who were too poor to make an offering of any other sort. They were conciliatory for a person who couldn't afford. God didn't want them turned away at the door because they couldn't afford it. So he wanted them to receive those things. We know that Jesus was poor at birth because we know that when the offering was made for him as a child, it was two turtle doves, which again is the, the offering you give if you're too poor to make a, a, a substantial sacrifice like a lamb or a goat or an oxen. So, in our cases, Jesus goes and he clears his house, drives from it the leaven as one would on their Monday. And then we read that the lame and the blind came to him and he healed them. That same house that was tended to be a place of prayer, of interaction and interfacing with God, intimacy with the God of creation, had become cluttered with stuff. Maybe you understand that because we are the temple of the living God now, having said yes to Jesus. And that building God's given you. That's temporary and you'll cash in this building for a fresh one. The older we get, the more confident we say hallelujah to that. It's supposed to be a place of prayer. But we can clutter it up too. Clutter up with stuff to where we say goofy things like I'm too busy to really spend time with God the way I should. And we don't realize it, but the two things we lose is our sight and our walk. And those are the two things Jesus heals the moment he drives the leaven out of his house. Well, that was Monday. That was yesterday. Today is Tuesday. And Tuesday, Tuesday is the day that you inspect two things. First, yourself. You take a good look and say, am I ready to celebrate this Passover? You do some introspection. Are there things wrong with me? God, is there anything wrong with me? How interesting for what it's worth. These same people that should be asking God at this point to reveal the failures in their own lifestyle are instead trying to find fault in his own son, God's son. Ironic, isn't it? But it was also the day you inspected the lamb. Because you knew that in just a couple days you were going to be sacrificing a lamb and that lamb's to be without blemish. So you you make sure that you give it a good once-over to make sure that you were offering the right one. Interesting. On the day that the Lamb is to be inspected is the day that Jesus is going to be approached by every major religious group, each with their wick to burn. It's Tuesday. It's two days before his arrest. It's three days before his crucifixion and five days before his resurrection. The first group to show up were the chief priests. They're the authoritative group. They're the ones responsible for overseeing, if you will. They were the church wardens. 
And in their case, they kind of came and they asked Jesus, by what authority does he think he has a right to do these things? Who ordained him? After him came, we see here, from group to group, the Sadducees, the Pharisees are next. The law-keeping legalist asking about the tax law, if it's right to pay taxes, with Caesar, strange bedfellows with the Herodians, soft-hearted, if you will, to the Roman Empire. The separatists of the liberals within the church body, in this case, the Jewish nation. And those that are softest to the world's culture of the day had found a common enemy, and because of that, they were walking, willing to stand hand-in-hand hand to challenge Jesus. Jesus then walks us through a handful of parables, and now we're approached by our third group here in verse 23, the Sadducees. I remind you, the Sadducees were a group that are direct descendants, or at least initially, from the family of Zadok. Zadok was the high priest in the days of him and Abiathar, during the days of David. And I remind you, when Israel was taken captive in 586 B.C., they were gone for 70 years, and when they came back, they didn't have a king. They didn't have anyone that was sort of their rock star leader. There was no prime minister. There was no president. So what did they do? They said, well, who do we pick? Well, we pick a high priest, a kohen gadol. Who do we pick? Well, there's a lot of guys that could be candidates, but let's find the guy that was direct relations to David's high priest. Wouldn't that be best? He was our greatest king. And so they find a family that, if you think about it, basically woke up one day and became high priest because they had the same surname. That was it. And they were naturalists. What it tells us, a little bit of insight in Acts 23.8, that the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees confirm all of those things. They confirm both. Now understand, the Pharisees, well, they were, again, the sort of the back-to-the-Bible people, but they were legalists. They'd gone extreme. But the Sadducees were completely liberal. So if you think about it, what they basically, the idea was that they said they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. We would call it perhaps the Pentateuch or the Torah. Torah means teaching. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The same in the Jewish Bible as ours as well. And they said they only believed in those, and because they said they only believed in those, they didn't believe in angels. They said they didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in anything they couldn't see. They were the naturalists of the day. They were driven by a natural mind. How strange that the person who's to be leading the brigade for the Jewish people didn't even really believe in God the way that God was. And it makes you wonder, well, what about this guy during the day of, of Yom Kippur when he would go and make the offering before the Ark of the Covenant? And, you know, and there he would be, he had to be right, and the sacrifice had to be right, or he would die. Well, it's important to note that there was no Ark in that temple. There was no ark in it during the days, by the way, when it was rebuilt by Zerubbabel. And there was no ark in it during the days when Herod aggrandized this thing from 4,400 square feet to something 1.2 million square feet. There was no, when, when it became the building that was one of the seven wonders of the world over seven stories tall, the one temple that Jesus would walk in, there was no ark in the Holy of Holies. Just a rock. So it was a sacrifice. It was a ritual. And the strange thing about it was these were the people leading the religious brigade. They were, if you will, the theologians, but strange theologians because they didn't believe in anything they couldn't see, which included angels. So how do we relate to people like this? How does that work for people today? Well, let me just say it in its simplest sense. These were people who were nihilists. In other words, they just believed you lived, you died, and then that was it. You basically then became peering a worm chow. So there was really nothing but this life you had. So carpe diem, seize the day, do your good thing. And they kind of lived this kind of, well, if you will, sort of a human karma, where if you did nice things, nice things happened to you. Now, let's be honest. There's a bit of logic to that. You don't need a universe to tell you that. I mean, you walk around slapping people, your day might be a little bit rougher for you than if you were kind to them. Let's just be honest. But they believe that was all you got. And they said that this was justifiable because, after all, what in the world could they possibly see from the Scriptures anyways? Interesting for what it's worth. Let me say this. That God never, never, never wanted us to believe that there was a temporary world for which we were simply going to be a part of and that's it. In Genesis 17, we read that God had and gave uh, Abraham an everlasting covenant. Everlasting means there's no end. In Exodus 12, the very feast that we celebrate here that Jesus is about to enter, Pesach, Passover, he speaks of it as an everlasting ordinance. 
In Leviticus 16, he speaks of an everlasting atonement. In Numbers 25, God is an eternal or everlasting priesthood. In Deuteronomy 33, I believe it's verse 27, God, we read, by the way, is the eternal God, our refuge, and underneath him are the everlasting arms. You'd think that would be enough. That's the Torah. But they really hadn't read that. They just kind of claimed they had. Psalm 41 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, as we sang. That's where it comes from. Amen and amen. It's also reiterated in Psalm 93. Habakkuk 1.3 says God is, or 1.12, I'm sorry, is from everlasting to everlasting. Isaiah 9.6, we know that one of his names of Jesus will be everlasting God. His Redeemer, or he is the Redeemer from everlasting, I believe that's Isaiah 63.16. He's the everlasting King according to Jeremiah 10. He has an everlasting kingdom, that's Daniel 4. And then Daniel 4, he speaks of having an everlasting dominion his mercy is everlasting psalm 100 his righteousness is everlasting psalm 119 his wisdom is from everlasting proverbs 8 his kindness is everlasting isaiah 54 he is in eternal excellence isaiah 60 and is he is everlasting love according to jeremiah 31 what part of everlasting are we missing we have, as those who believe in the living God, an everlasting foundation, that's Proverbs 10. We have an eternal home, that's Ecclesiastes 12. An everlasting joy, that's Isaiah 35. And an everlasting name, or an eternal name, Isaiah 56. That's what we have. So what part of eternity are we missing? Strangely enough, the idea of hell is not new either. Those that are God's enemies, according to Isaiah 33, have everlasting burnings. Jeremiah 20, everlasting confusing, and Jeremiah 23, everlasting reproach. I think that's pretty simple, for which he tells us that they would be sent to eternal or everlasting darkness. In Psalm 139, the very last verse says, Lead me in the way of everlasting, because his ways are from old, from everlasting, Micah 5 and Micah 3. In Ezekiel, I'm sorry, in Ecclesiastes 3.11, it tells us that he's made everything beautiful in its time. He's put eternity in their hearts. In the heart of every person, there's something that's hungry for something that transcends. But these people weren't getting it. They were eternity-less religious people. So what does an eternity-less religious person look like? Well, they look like a Sadducee. They look like somebody who, by the way, can still be very religious, still have all the robes and rooms, still have all the regalia, still light the incense, still pray the prayers, still do the rituals and the regalia. But for the moment... So their standards are for the moment. Their drives are for the moment. Their payouts are for the moment. And that becomes the problem. And this is the weird part about it. It tells us for what it's worth in 1 Corinthians 2.14. And I have to build on this to help us get a little bit more understanding of what they're dealing with here. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, it tells us the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. They can't know them because they're spiritually discerned. There was a natural mind that every one of us possessed before we gave our life to God. And we were building our understanding on the things around us. Well, think about the things around us. Here, everything is a start and a stop. Everything begins and everything ends. Even rocks look different than they did when we first started. The schoolhouse we go to that we were a kid, now we visit, was tiny. It's amazing how much smaller it's gotten since we grew up. That restaurant that we loved, we go back to when it's not there anymore. Just found one of those this week. I'm not bitter. And everything comes at a cost. You know that if somebody wants to give you something, you know sooner or later it's going to come with something. And that's just the way we live it here. So someone's really nice and they come up to you and they want to put a string around your wrist because somehow they think it's good luck. It's juju. Come here. Come in. You know, you know what's going to happen. The moment they put that around your wrist and it's tied, then their hand is out to have you pay exorbitant amounts of money for a piece of thread. Because things aren't free here. We get that. Kindness is either something that compensates for our past failure or it covers up a vested interest. And we know that. Here, justice is the highest order and therefore revenge is understandable. But forgiveness looks like failure. Meekness looks like weakness. Selflessness is unheard of. And you get it now, you get it for yourself. That's the way it works now. So what don't we get? We don't get grace. We don't understand grace the idea that, and we don't understand selfless love because, to be honest, those are not worldly things. Grace is entirely reliant on the kindness of the giver, not on the deservedness of the recipient. The moment you deserve it, it's not grace. 
which is strange, by the way, because the way you're supposed to learn that was from family. You see, somewhere down the line, you should have had parents, and forgive me if you didn't have these kind of parents, that loved you when you pooped and cried and kept them up all night. You gave them nothing but poop and cry. Think about it. What did you do to earn their love, their care? That's supposed to be grace. That's supposed to be a love that transcends you earning it. But we've trained our parents not to grow up, so why in the world should we think these kids should either? And if you haven't had that kind of family, I'm really, really sorry, but let me welcome you to a Heavenly Father who really wants to demonstrate that, right? The idea of that, that there's something weird and transcends, calls us to want to fall in love with somebody, but we do it for very selfish reasons, to make us feel important, to feel satisfied, because there's a hole in our heart that God's supposed to fill, that somehow if we meet the right person, they could constantly validate us and make us feel important and wanted. But if we're going to be honest, we entered into it trying to make a deal with someone to figure out what we have to do to get that. So we understand that the concept of love that Disney sells makes a lot more sense to us than God. And then we come in here and we start talking about the love of God and people don't get that. They start asking, well, what do I have to pay for this? We start talking about grace and people don't get that. We start talking about Jesus dying for them and they don't get that because the natural mind doesn't get that. That I would that I would understand. <clears throat> and to be honest, Somewhere down the line, instead of us holding our ground, we decided, well, then why don't we become more, and I just love this word, relevant. So let me ask you something. If somebody were drowning in the water, and you're watching them, and you're watching them drown, well, we can all be honest. It's really mean to tell them to do something like swim harder. You know, swim harder. They're drowning. Like, that's going to help. But you look at them and you think, you know what I really need to be right now? is relevant. I need to be more relevant. I need them to be able to know I understand what they're going through. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to drown next to them. That would be really cool. When you actually have the capacity to pull them out and save their life. Like, but, but they won't get me. They won't understand me. I'm from a totally different place. Yes, you're actually from dry ground where no one's drowning. And they're drowning. So the question is, do you want to actually have them pull you into their world or do you want to pull them in yours? Do you want to drown or do you want them saved? That's really the question. Unfortunately, these Sadducees had been so engulfed in the natural world that they'd built an entire religion around it. Let me tell you how that would look today. We could have a church where everything we do really looks great. We could do outreach after outreach. And in those outreaches, we clothe the the, the people who are, you know, the homeless, we give them shelter, we give them food, we give them, we even help bathe them and help them do that. We go and we visit prisons and, you know, we're, we're visiting people who are locked up. Because after all, Jesus said something like that, didn't he, in Matthew 25? You know, and so we're kind of doing those things. And, you know, and, and then, you know what else, while we're at it, let's make sure we have a few barbecues and a couple of things so we can invite people over so they can kind of see how nice we are. And let's make sure they know we are the nicest people on the planet, we are the kindest people on the planet, and we are the most concerned about every social injustice. So we're going to grab our picket signs and make sure we're at the front of everything that we don't agree with. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't clothe the homeless or give them a place to live or help them eat and so forth and take care of those that are impoverished. I'm telling you, if that's the end of it all, then we're actually just like the Sadducees. What we are is people who are disconnected from eternity. So in the end of it all, what we are is we're just nice people. So we go and we make a... Uh, a, a beachfront somewhere because something horrible happens, like a tsunami hits the south coast of Thailand. And we want to go there and we want to help rebuild a city. What do you want to be known for when you leave? Do you want to be known as the builder guys? The nice guys? The people who couldn't handle the spicy Thai food? Or do you want to be known as the Jesus guys? Do you want to leave them with houses and then realize they're going to have to vacate them ultimately to walk into hell? Or do you really want to be able to say that there should be something more than just a city built there? There should be a church built there. Because we know this, that the moment we bring Jesus in, the world is not going to applaud the very things that they would if we kept them out. Isn't it true? If we give blankets to everyone who looks cold, somebody's going to think we're cool for it. But the people who think we're cool are going to basically be convinced all we really have to offer We're the blanket people. We're the food people. 
We're the place where people can go to get a hit right before they need another hit, you know, crack hit. Because after all, don't churches just give money to people? And that's all we're known for. Now, Leon, I don't want us to be known either for the people who just don't do things. We don't get drunk. Well, why don't we get drunk? We don't run around having premarital sex. We don't get divorced. Wouldn't it be nice to be honest these days if actually people thought that was even part of our cachet? What are we known for today? What is the church known for by the unsaved world? Irrelevant? Wouldn't it be better if we're going to be irrelevant anyways, at least in their eyes, that we were actually people who loved each other and loved God? And people are like, I don't know, but they at least they love each other and they're so darn nice and they're so joyful and happy. And I don't know. And they just all want to, they just want to talk about Jesus. So they knew that, that what they were going to get when they came in. Could you imagine if you went into a hospital and it was actually just as confused as our church could be? And I mean the church in Mass, not just our building here. And they were like, well, you know, I, I, we don't really want to offend anyone. And everyone's kind of sick that kind of comes in, so we want to be more relevant. So we thought what would be really cool, instead of actually administering medicine all the time, was we just kind of sat around and talked about being sick. And we're like, oh, I feel you. Ooh, yeah. You know, I need some of that sickness, too. Yeah. You know, we really may not be able to help you with that disease, but at least I know somebody else who's diseased like that. Let's bring him in and have him speak to you. So we can tell you how to continue to stay sick but at least deal with it. Beloved, please understand, we're the only light of the world. Jesus didn't say we were a light of the world. We are the light of the world. And darkness never overcomes light. John 1 makes that clear. The only reason why darkness exists is darkness is the absence of light. You're aware of that, right? So how could a world possibly be dark around you unless we cover up the light God's given us? Why in the world would you put that under a bushel? And you know that's going to make enemies. But if you live long enough, you start to realize some of those enemies get saved. Because it hits a nerve. And then they realize, oh my goodness, what in the world am I doing? Because somewhere down the line, inside of us, if he's placed eternity in our hearts, there is something gnawing at our souls that says, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more. There's got to be more than getting money. There's got to be more than getting famous. There's got to be more than getting liked. There's got to be more than getting a girl. There's got to be more than being, than being wanted by someone. Or getting the next thing, or the iPhone 7, or, or the Galaxy 7. Oh, that blew up. Let's get something else. I mean, what, what is it that we have to get in something inside of us? There's got to be more than this. And we are the only ones who have the answer when we know it. We know we are the only ones who have the answer. So what happens when we don't speak? Well, somebody else will. And they'll sell them the next thing. Which we know, we know it couldn't possibly satisfy. And the Sadducees have come to Jesus as eternity-less religion. And they come to Jesus and they think they've got him nailed because they've made up a story and they think this is perfect for him. So they approach Jesus and they don't call him Lord. No one's going to call him Lord. They're going to call him teacher. And by the way, from an eternity-less religion, Jesus as a teacher doesn't seem to bother him. They don't mind him teaching about being nice to people. They don't mind him teaching about, you know, making sure that you don't repay your enemies like you should. I mean, it's a little weird and all. But the moment you start talking about the resurrection, the resurrection is the poster child for eternity. It tells us that there's something beyond this death, and my gods are going to be there to meet us. And the scripture makes it clear, it is appointed unto man once to death and then to resurrection. I'm sorry, no, once to death and then to judgment. You're going to stand before God after you cash in that body, like it or not. You're not going to get a second chance. What are you going to do with it now? And they come to Jesus. And like a classical liberal approach, the way that we do it is we make up a story that we think is going to make things look bad. And they're like, let me tell you a story. We're all aware of Deuteronomy 25. In Deuteronomy 25, the idea is God doesn't want the name of a person to vanish. And so if a guy gets married and he has younger brothers and they still live in the same house and the, and the brother dies without any children, well, then his name would be vanquished. So they said the next guy in line needs to marry her. Now, if that be the case, I would be very, very concerned about who my brother married. How about you? I would definitely be like, mm, I'm not sure about this. You ain't marrying that girl because if you are, you better have a baby right away. Matter of fact, better have a couple, because I ain't risking it. 
And so they know they have this. Deuteronomy 25, the first 15 verses. So they, they have this, this story they can pull out. And then they say, so, so let me kind of play a story out for you. Play out a scenario because we have the word in front of us. Let's do something with it. I remind you, Jesus is in the temple. It says that very, at that same time, which tells us Jesus had already been teaching. He had already been dealing with the Pharisees and shutting them down. So it's kind of like they're all queuing up to see who can stump God's son with something about God. Do you ever think that's going to work? So they're kind of, oh, it's our turn. Well, ha, 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 you lost. Check it out. And that's like a sporting event at this point now. So they come to Jesus. All right, here's our story. Once upon a time, there was a girl. We're going to call her Zebra. And Vebra likes to cook a food. And, and, and Vebra cooks a food for her husband. And they have no children, but he cooks a food for her husband, and her husband dies. It's terrible. Very, very terrible. So, the next guy in line. And this poor guy, this poor Debra, Vebra, sorry, this poor Vebra, the guy has six brothers. So, you know, in steps the next guy, brother number two. And he steps in, and he has a little bit of her meal, and as he has a little bit of her meal, he dies. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be brother number three, four, five, six, and I certainly wouldn't want to be number seven. By that point, man, I think I would be eating out all the time and sleeping with one eye open. You know, thinking, boy, all of my brothers have died. I mean, interesting, it says, and he left to his brother, like in his will. By the way, you get my CD collection. Oh, and my wife. And, and he left to his brother, then this Zebra gal. So in the end of it all, Zebra is married to seven guys, all of which have died. That would be suspicious for any of us. And then somewhere down the line, Vebra gets a little hungry and accidentally eats her own meal and down she goes as well. Now that whole eternity thing. Oh, see, this is how I know it's stupid. It's stupid because let's just face it. Who is she going to be married to in heaven? Hello? And you can imagine they're like so gloating with the idea, ah, oh, we stumped Jesus. And can you see Jesus ever looking? Has anyone ever done this to you? where they think they really know what they're talking about, and they come up with something they think is brilliant, and you look at them and you go, I can't believe you really thought that was it. That was it right there. Then someone looks, have anyone done this with you? So, uh, if Jesus is real, who's Cain's wife? Right? First of all, she's married. Why should you be asking? Shouldn't I be concerned if you're asking about another man's wife? That's not good. Second of all, she lived 5,000 years ago. She ain't for you. And if you really want to get fun, usually I just make up a name, like Mushugana, which is Hebrew for crazy or goofy. Like her name's Mushugana. Now what? And they're like, ah, and that's about all they can do. Now you're going to give your life to Jesus? Because clearly I answered, no, of course not. Well, then obviously this wasn't about you looking for truth. So they think they got him. They're like, ha, 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 ha. What do you have to say about that? So which one is she married to? The cuter one, the younger one, the one that ate the most? And Jesus looks and he's got an answer for him, but he looks and he says, you are so wrong. Because you don't know two different things. Did you notice that in the text? The first is the one that makes the most sense. You don't know the scriptures. You know, in other words, he's like, if you'd been reading your Bible, you wouldn't have come and looked so stupid in front of me doing this. If you just read your Bibles. And he ultimately is going to quote from a couple of things. First of all, he says, you need to know this. <clears throat> you need to know that when the resurrection takes place, well, we're not married there. It isn't like, I mean, did you actually think that if there was an eternity, you would have to be married to the same person for the rest of eternity? Which would have been rough for the Sadducees, because the average Sadducee had at least 13 wives on and off. They were quick to marry and divorce. So that had been really rough for them. They were like, oh, I don't know, which one of these am I going to be stuck with? That would have been really rough for them. So that points out something really simple, first of all. For those of you who are married, this is the one place you get that. Sorry, honey. But I get to be your brother for eternity. Those of you who are single, don't worry. You're already engaged in heaven because you're the bride of Christ. So you never have to worry about that. It isn't like you're ever going to die alone and be alone. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you already are betrothed to him and you belong to him and that's eternal. Because see, here's the difference. What God does, God never does things working off of the plane of the temporary. God does things for keeps. When he saved you, he didn't save you for a day. When he betrothed you to him, 
He didn't do that for a day. And when he gave you his spirit, he didn't give you his spirit on loan. We read that he dwells with us forever. I think that's really awesome. So So first of all, let's just eliminate this ridiculous concept. If you'd be reading your scripture, you'd realize that marriage is, is just for now. At least as we understand it here. Because the two become one flesh. And you don't have flesh in heaven. And because you don't have flesh in heaven, you can't be married. Now understand, in the Middle East, even to this day, married people have to consummate the marriage. I'm not trying to get weird, but it's like they have to be physical together. That's why they can actually consider in certain places like Saudi Arabia and so forth, if two people are together physically, they have to consider themselves married. Married because they had already united. By the way, people who are lacking particular body parts like eunuchs and so forth couldn't get married because they didn't possess the power to be married, at least in the mindset of a Middle Easterner, which is really important when Jesus says, and this is God speaking in the flesh, they're like the angels of God in heaven. Angels of God in heaven can't get married because they don't have flesh to be united with someone. They're spiritual beings. We read that in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, that they're spiritual beings sent to serve those who would inherit salvation. That's pretty simple. Okay, okay, I get that. And ultimately, then he's going to quote from this text, then in Deuteronomy 3, it tells us in Luke countertext that ultimately, that this is the text he says in the burning bush passage, which tells me, because twice he says this text. Once he says it to to Moses, and then the second time he tells Moses to tell it to the people. He says, I'm the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're going, how does that answer the question? When God is speaking to Moses, how exactly does that make God, how does that prove anything about an afterlife? How does that prove anything about a resurrection? I mean, the ironic thing about this, you're aware of this, right, is Jesus is five days away from his own resurrection. And these guys are trying to teach that there is no resurrection. Jesus is like, oh man, you are in for it. And not only his resurrection, he says in John 5 that the time is coming soon when those who are dead will actually come right out of their tombs and stand before in judgment. He already told us about that. And not only that, in, Do- in um, Matthew chapter 27, it tells us that at Jesus' resurrection, many people came out of their tombs and walked around the city. And I would imagine if God were having any sense of humor at that moment, if it were me, be thankful it's not, you know, I would have said, okay, no, here are all the addresses to the Sadducees' houses. I want each one of you to go and just drop by and visit for a moment. I mean, can you imagine? It's like, you know, there's no such thing as the resurrection. It's like, great Uncle Murdy, what are you doing here? You've been dead for 50 years. I mean, that's the fun of God because he has these people come out of their graves. Now, ultimately, we know that there is a day of judgment. Revelation 20 makes that clear. And as Revelation 20 makes that clear, that we're all going to stand before God ultimately one day in judgment. The saved, by the way, for their works. Wait a minute, our works? I thought we're saved by grace. Well, we're already saved by grace. The issue here is not whether we're saved or not. The issue is what God, how much God wants to reward us. Have you ever thought that through? We don't stand before God and go, well, let's see how much you've done. Okay, I guess that's enough. If we've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, we've been bought by the blood of the Lamb. His Spirit's been placed within us as a down payment. We are guaranteed that we belong to Him. The only thing that's left at this point is God weighs the rest of what's been done so that He actually can reward the things that have been done with Him. How cool is that? My prayer is that God has a lot to say when we stand before him. Now, the unbeliever, on the other hand, they have a lot more to stand before God with because I imagine them saying, well, I'm a good person. And God's like, well, let's just roll film and take a look, shall we? And imagine what God can show for them because all of our evil deeds have been washed away in the blood of the Lamb. There's the beauty in that. So this crazy idea that there isn't a resurrection, well, clearly that's going to be pointed out all over the place. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, that if we really don't preach a resurrection, we have no eternity, we have no cling, no announcement of eternity in what we say. He says, we're the most pitiful people on the planet. And isn't that how the way the world looks at us? They're like, well, you don't even do the fun things we do. Why? For what? And if we tell them for nothing, they should think we're ridiculous, shouldn't they? This is in Colossians, by the way, chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 3, it talks about that everything we should do is in the name of Jesus. And in chapter 4, that everything that we do should be done, by the way, giving glory to God the Father, by the way, and that everything that we say should be seasoned with salt, full of grace and seasoned with salt, that we know how to answer each one. Seasoned with salt speaks about that, which is transcending. Every, Every day, I ask, has there been anything that has in any way impacted eternity today? Anything at all? Or has it been in a moment like this, just today where it's just been, I've been living in the moment and that's it. Well, wait a minute, but what if you're just around safe people? Can you not encourage them and have that impact eternity? 
If, if that isn't the case, then what in the world am I doing here with you guys? But when he speaks in the Exodus 3 text, when he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how in the world does that substantiate all that? Well, please hear me in this. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had all passed away. As a matter of fact, there had been four generations since all of that. There had been 400 years since all of that. But God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If he still is the God of Abraham, and God is not the God of the dead, well then clearly those dead go somewhere and they live somewhere because he's still the God of Abraham and Abraham still is. Or he would have been the God, but not anymore. And those people who have said yes to Jesus, comforted in the arms of our living God, in his everlasting arms right now, Stand before a God who says, I'm still the God of my mother, of your family, of Suzanne's grandfather. It's like, I am the God of Gip. Because we know he gave his life to Christ on his death, but we were there when it happened. And he goes, so one part of this are you missing? If you'd read your Bibles, you wouldn't be asking me this, because clearly Scripture makes that clear. But it isn't just that, as we wrap this around to get close to ending I mean, it's interesting because these same guys who said they didn't believe in angels, and that makes no sense to me. Because these guys, if they couldn't believe it, if they couldn't see it, well, then they couldn't believe it. But the Torah is full of angels. It's an angel who finds Hagar, by the way, Ishmael's mom, by the way. Weren't there angels that visited Sodom and Gomorrah before it was destroyed? Wasn't it the angel in Genesis 22 that told Abraham to stop from slaying his son? When Jacob fell asleep and put a pillar under his, uh, a stone under his head and he saw, if you will, an escalator, a ladder going to and fro heaven. What did he see going up and down from it? It was angels. That's what he says. Who did he wrestle with in Genesis 32? Who spoke to him in a flame of fire? Who delivered the Ten Commandments according to the book of Psalms? And by the way, aren't they celebrating Passover? Had Passover, by the way, if they put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, who passed over them? Wasn't it an angel who brought death? Am I missing something here? Because I look at this and I realize, if you had read, you could see Jesus going, your whole doctrine's nutty. How is it you say you first believe in the first five books of the Bible? That doesn't make any sense. Wasn't it God who said, by the way, in Exodus 23, I'll send my angel before you to bring you in the place, by the way, which I've prepared for you? And those of you who are familiar with the story of Balachim, or we might say Balaam, but Balachim, why did that donkey act so crazy? Well, because it saw an angel with a sword drawn. That's the way I see it, by the way, because that's the way Scripture says it in Numbers 22. I would think, how could you not believe in angels when they're all over the, book of the, the books of the Torah? And these people who were all over the place with their made-up religion were doing it all for the now? Why? What do they possibly have to gain from it? Well, they had the prime property of real estate, of the temple. They had a lot to gain from it. But they had everything to lose as a result. The radical thing about this is that Jesus didn't just say, you err or you are so wrong because you don't know the scriptures. Look at the text with me as we bring this around to close. It says in verse 29, you are mistaken. Not knowing the scriptures, nor what? The power of God. And this is the part that kind of spun me dancing for a moment, and I kind of really liked that about it, was that as we start to look at this, I get the idea that Jesus looks and goes, you know, you guys, if you just read your Bibles, we wouldn't have this conversation right now. I get that. But could you imagine Jesus actually saying to them, you know, you are so wrong because you don't, you not only not know the scripture, you don't even know God's power. Because if you knew God's power, we wouldn't be talking about a gal being married to seven guys and who she's going to be married to in heaven. How in the world does that work? That seems a little stranger, especially when the word know here, by the way, is not that gnosko experience will know. It's that idos. It's the word that means you're not even aware of this. I mean, you haven't even been taught this. Your brain doesn't even have this in it yet. You don't get God's power? Well, let me ask you, when you think of God's power, how do you think of it? Do you think of it as shakes and wiggles and the, the holy eebie-jeebies? Do you think of it as angel feathers and, and your hair standing on end? Is that what you think of God's power? Do you think of God's power as smiting the wicked? That would be good. Man, and because I've got a list. Where is God's power demonstrated in the church? 
Because if we don't understand what God wants to do, we're going to put it somewhere else, aren't we? Just the same way that they, because the Sadducees hadn't been taught the Word of God the way they should, because they didn't grab a hold of the Word of God, they invented it themselves. They filled the space with something else, which we can be honest is nonsense, which the church will always do. If we don't have the Word of God and we don't take it for what it is, we're going to fill it with philosophy, we're going to fill it with all kinds of things, with some form of crazy experiential docket, but we're not going to go with the truth. So in the end, it's like, well, I don't know, I had this experience, so it's probably this. And you know people that that's their life. But then we open up the Word, and it's like, oh my goodness, I actually, I know you. Because you've made really clear in your own autobiography, this autobiographical love story, where I'm the actual person you're in love with. How do I not read this and see how beautiful you are in it? So what is it that we see? How is the world going to see the power of God? Why does the world not want to come to Jesus? Because they see the cross, but not the resurrection. See, at the cross, our old life dies. We get that. For us, some of us, that's actually a good thing, right? I mean, I think of who I was. You think of who you were. John, we think, you know, we were pretty rotten people. Go ahead, God, kill that. But do you think that's all there is? So what happens if we don't get a new identity in Christ? Well, I ask John, so John, what are you? John might say, I'm an ex, and then he'll go over all the things he was. So in other words, his identity is from his tombstone? Is that really what John wants? So the best thing you really have is what you were? Isn't that kind of weird? Can you imagine? Okay, so let me ask you something. Do you remember who you were at 13? Give me, give me a, just, just for fun, just for fun. We're almost done here, so stay with me. At 13, if there was someone who was going to call you a whatever, what would they have called you? A nerd, the cute one, bikini girl. What were they? The brain? Someone say stupid? Oh, skinny. Okay. Who, what else? Give me something. Come on, help me out here. The brat. Oh, nah. <laughs> I'm just looking at your husband to see how he's responding to that right now. What else? Sarah, give me something. What did they say? 13. The loud one. Okay. What else? Anyone? Deborah, what do you have been at 13? The shy one. Okay. Now, I'm looking around and I don't think any of you are still 13. So imagine I was to say, Hey, Maureen, tell me about yourself. You're like, well, I'm the ex-skinny one. I'm only saying that because that's what you said. I'm just, Sarah, I'm the ex-loud one. I'm the ex-brat. And that's all we really are known for? Wouldn't that be weird? Wouldn't, be, wouldn't we be wise enough to say, well, who are you now? But like, hey, I just want to think, you know, I just want to tell you what I am is an ex-addict and I'm an ex-drug dealer. I'm an ex-violent person. I'm an ex-gang leader. I'm an ex-floozy. You know, whatever it is. People go, but what are you now? And here's the crazy part. If we don't really give light to the idea that there is life after that, then we won't know either. Imagine if I were to ask you, well, okay, now don't tell me who you were before coming to Jesus. Tell me who you are now. What would you say? Would you have an answer? Because if the world can't see what happens at the resurrection and the new life that comes from that, well, then we're just going to look a lot like a Sadducee. And I understand why the world would look and go, well, who wants to join that club? Because all you are is the X things. Let me tell you, when Jesus looks at a group of people that were transformed because they were brought to Jesus when they were crippled and blind and tormented with various diseases and they were powerless and paralyzed and possessed. And this is at the end of Matthew 4 and it's like all of a sudden there's piles of cots and chains and crutches that will never be needed again and they're all there and then Jesus looks at them and now they're like, who in the world am I now? I'm not paralyzed anymore. I'm not blind anymore. I'm not possessed anymore. What am I now? Well, what does Jesus teach us in Matthew 5? How does he, what's the first thing he says? Eight times. Blessed. You're blessed. That's what you are first. Stop thinking about what you were and think that's who you are. You're blessed now. You're blessed and you're His and you're a new creation. That's what you are now. And what if you don't embrace that? Then you think, well, I probably don't have victory like I used to have. You know, I thought that Jesus gave me victory, but all I can do is 
continue thinking about who I used to be. Jesus is like, look it, stop limping. <clears throat> you have both legs now. Stop groping. You can actually see. Stop asking for somebody to give you a hand to carry you somewhere. Because you can walk now. You, didn't, you couldn't before, but now you can. But don't just tell me you're the walker. You're the seer. You're the blessed one. Do you know why you're blessed? Because the God of eternity, who's going forth and coming from, are from eternity to eternity, whose throne is from eternity to eternity, whose love is everlasting from eternity to eternity. God is always loving, always will. Because that same eternal, invincible, immeasurable, infinite God came and poured himself into a man to die on the cross so that all of your sin and shame and filth and guilt could be paid for so that that one payment was a permanent payment so that eternity could be changed for you. Eternity, not just the moment. And that eternity doesn't start the moment you cash in this body because he says whoever believes in him has, not will have, but has eternal life. We have it now. So people look and go, what does eternal life look like? Well, I don't know. I just don't do drugs anymore. Wow. Pretty great eternal life, huh? So we're going to be known eternally as people who just don't do drugs anymore? Aren't you thankful that according to Isaiah 60, it says that he wipes our brains clear of their memories before? And now you think, well, that sounds scary. But you understand, God doesn't want just the absence of sin in front of us. He wants the absence of all concepts of sin. And if we could remember it, it would still be there in one way or another. I'm going to stand before God. I won't even remember sin. Oh, praise God for that. I won't have to go, but God, remember when I? God's like, nope, and you don't either. So hear me as we go to prayer. Jesus looks and he says, if you only knew my word, and you only knew my power, the world would know what a new creation looks like. And a new creation, by the way, doesn't look like somebody still driven by the lusts of this world. A new creation looks like somebody who looks like God. Looks like somebody who loves people. That is going to be weird. That is about grace, not revenge. It is about kindness when we shouldn't be. You realize why Jesus talks about us loving our enemies and being good to, to, kind to those who persecute us and doing good to, to those who speak all manners of evil against us? You know, and then we read that weird text where it says things like, well, if you're only kind to them, you know, if you're kind and you give your enemy a cup of cold water or some food, it's like heaping hot coals on their forehead. And we're like, yeah, hot coals on their forehead. See, that's like revenge. God's like, what am I? How is this like a new person? Why would you heap hot coals on someone's forehead? And people have all kinds of really goofy ideas about that. So follow me on this. We're in a, we're in a little, we're in a walled village and we're surrounded by an enemy camp. We can't go out, we'll get killed. They come in, we're going to fight. And we're waiting. Their camp is set up. It's set up. And God says, you know, I want, you to, I want you to be kind to them. Kind to them. They want to kill me. God's like, trust me. You know what happens when you're kind to them? You're like heaping hot coals upon their heads. So what would happen if we went and we launched hot coals upon the heads, on the, on the roofs of those tents, upon their, above them, on their heads above them? What would happen? You'd scatter their camp. Some might even come and join us. See, God doesn't want us killing the enemy. God wants us converting the enemy. That's the point. Now, we're aware the enemy, the, uh, the, Satan's not going to convert. But a lot that are in his camp are going to leave it if we give them a good reason to. And they're probably not going to do that if we just sort of pick it and hit them in the face. So look at First of all, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? I'm not asking, are you religious? Have you done nice things? I'm asking, have you accepted God's gift, his offer for you to pay that price at the cross? Because if you haven't, I want to give you that choice. But if you have, well, who in the world are you now? Are you just somebody that's got new knowledge and a whole new set of practices? Can they see God's word in you? And can they see God's power? Or do they just see that you have new godly practices? Because the world needs to see evidence, and you're it. We're it. We're as good as it gets. Isn't that crazy?
we're as good as it gets. When people say, so God makes you a new person, what kind of new person are you? Do you have an answer? Because we should. And let's not just say, well, this is what I was. Tell me who you are now. How is that different? What does the resurrected life look like? And you're probably aware of this. You can't have a resurrected life. You can't have a resurrection without a death. And if we don't let the old life die, we can't see a resurrected one come in its place. So if you've accepted Jesus, I want to challenge you. And as a church and as a Christian, let your life and speech be one full of eternity. When we say, you know what? In the sight of heaven, would I be making this choice? Because right now this is all temporary. It's a hotel room I'm checking out of, and no matter how much I decorate it, I'm still leaving it behind. The question is, when I go home, do I have anything waiting for me there? Pray, pray with me, would you please? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for the way you've gone before us. I want to thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to open your word one more time and expect you, Lord, just to speak. We confess to you, Lord, it is so easy to get suckered into the temporary. Those things, Lord, that we get trapped in this mindset, God, that it's just about getting on a train from one place to another and then it's like we live this day where we do this thing, we go to work, we get done, we eat dinner, we go to sleep and we live another day and then one day we're just going to stop. We won't be catching any more trains. We won't be showing up to, to work. We won't be coming home from work and eating dinner and then going to sleep and waiting for the next day to do that. It isn't going to stop. And if that's all we've got, no wonder why people think we're goofy. But God, we recognize today there's so much more than this. And Lord, if we lived with a mindset of eternity, well, we recognize that everything we do impacts things eternally in a world that is temporary. There's an expiration date we can't read, but we know it's coming. And this world is falling apart. Even the scientists are starting to catch up with us and realize it. Oh God, please. Since we're the only ambassadors of the lifeboats, help us not to get so comfortable on that Titanic that we don't want to leave. And God, I do pray right now for every person who calls on your name that we would take a careful look, give a so what test to all the things we think are just practices and ask ourselves, how does this bring us closer to you, Lord Jesus? And how does it bring others closer? How does this impact eternity? That our speech really would be full of grace and seasoned with salt. That our actions would truly be in your name. And that we wouldn't just be known as nice people, kind people, people who just don't get drunk or people who don't sleep around, people who may be more moral than the average, but rather people who have been infected with the God who so loves them that they are satisfied in their soul. And that directs the choices we make. Please, God. So, Lord, please infect our hearts in such a way And here in this room, if you've not sure that you've ever said yes to the gift of Jesus Christ, I'd love the privilege of offering that to you now. I'm simply going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen so you know what it is you'd be agreeing to. And then at the end, I ask if you agree to give a confident amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words now. So be it in my life. And this is it. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. Like all men are sinners, so am I. And I know that sin causes me to stand before you guilty in and of it. I could try to tell you I've done lots of good works, but in the end of it all, you've offered to pay for all of my sin. Why in the world would I try to pay a bill you've already paid? And because you so loved me with an eternal, infinite love, you sent Jesus to die on that cross for me so that all of my crimes in my heart could be punished properly And just like Scripture promised, he was buried and then rose again on the third day so that he could show me there's a brand new life. And I invite Jesus to be more than just my Savior and my ransom, my payment, but also the Lord of my life and the architect of my reinvention. Have me now, Lord, I pray. So I commit myself to you and say, hey, if this is what you really want to do, I'd be a fool to say no. So I say, yes, God, have me now. Adopt me as your own. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, 
Amen. God, you've heard our prayers now. And as we sing one last song, lead us, Lord, to genuinely worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.